Well, good morning. Glad you're all here this morning, and I'm grateful that uh, God has given me something to share with you this morning that I hope hope you will enjoy and be blessed by. Let's bow our heads as we uh, enter into our message. Dear Father in heaven, you are our great God, and we know that you have love for each one of us. You have brought us here this morning, and we know that you have something that you want us to hear. Maybe different things for different ones of us, but we just pray that you will help us to hear them. And Lord, we know that you love every person in this world, and that's part of what we want to show here this morning. And so just help us to see that, and just fill us with your Holy Spirit as we worship here together. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you had some part in Vacation Bible School? All right. I know we got some kids here. we got a lot of helpers. Anybody recognize this picture? That was part of the... Stan recognizes it. All right. That was part of the, the theme of the Vacation Bible School. Rescued. Safe in Jesus. And every night there was a different theme for the... Um, the lessons that were being taught to the kids. And I, they were taught through stories, through the science lab, through the games, um, through the various interactions, the craft. And the, as I recall them, they were God calls, God leads, God saves, God provides, and God keeps his promises. Well, it was about that time that Pastor Zach asked me if I would be able to speak uh, this morning. And as I thought about that, how do you say no to the pastor? But I thought, no, this is good, because I had really liked these themes that we had for Vacation Bible School. And it brought to my mind a book that I'm not going to show you quite yet, but that I had gotten some years ago, uh, one time when they were thinning the church library. They'd put books out on the table and say, have at it, take all you want. And I, I took, back in the day when my kids were little especially, I took probably more than my fair share of stories, that, books that looked interesting. And they've been on my shelf, and occasionally I'll pick one up and read it. And this is one that I have read just within the last several months, and it just tied, seemed to, in my mind, I was impressed that it tied together with what I wanted to talk about this morning. You know, we sang, uh, Jesus is the answer, and that's tr- really true for us, but what if you don't know who Jesus is? What if you've never heard the name of Jesus? What's your answer then? I don't know how well you can see this, but I'm sure most of you have heard of the concept of the 1040 window. It's the area between 10 and 40 degrees north of the equator in Asia and Africa primarily, where there's the highest levels of poverty and the least access to Christianity. Roughly two-thirds of the world's population lives in this, this zone, 
and that they're predominantly Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, atheist, or animist as far as their religion. And many of their governments, officially or unofficially, are opposed to Christian missionary work. So this has always been the biggest challenge for the spread of the gospel. Ironically, the gospel started right there in Palestine in the, within the 1040 window. But John 10.10 tells us, this is Jesus' words, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Well, who's they? I believe it applies to every person in this world, every person that's ever lived. That has been Jesus' goal, to bring life and more abundant life to every person. So what happens to those people in the 1040 window? There's a lot of groups working there. Not enough, but a lot. Adventist Frontier Missions, Gospel Outreach, others, Jesus for Asia, there's the Wycliffe Bible Translators. Uh, many uh, Christian denominations have work in this area to one degree or another. Now, what if you don't have the Bible in your language? so that you can read it. Not only you can't get the missionary there, but you don't have anything to read to share with the people in their own language. I mean, I didn't count how many Bibles I have in my house, but I, and I don't know how many are on my phone, but I can get a lot. We have a lot of access to Bibles in this country. And we are truly blessed by that. And think of what a, a blessing it is to be able to read God's Word, to listen to it, to try a different version, study it. But for many people in the world, this hasn't been, isn't the case. It's getting better. Over the last 100 years, a lot of translation work has gone on. Does God speak your language? I believe, believe he does. I believe he speaks every language in the world and a lot of others. This is the book that I found rediscovered on my on my bookcase that came here from the church. It's called God Spoke Tibetan by an Australian uh, medical missionary who was working in uh, northern India, Nepal, on the edges of Tibet uh, back around the time that the conclusion of this story uh, came about. And he had the privilege of talking to people who were actually involved in this uh, translation work, in the conclusion of the story, and he tells it uh, probably as well as anybody. He's, he's referenced on the, if you look up Tibetan, Tibetan Bible um, on Wikipedia, this book is the number one reference. So people are certainly aware of the story and what he, the role he's played. Do any of you speak Tibetan? No, I don't either. <laughs> All right, let's say, can we find Tibet on the map? It's right there. It's part of, now part of China. It had a, a period of independence from about 1912 to 1950 or so uh, as the Chinese uh, you know, dynasty, the Qin dynasty, I believe, broke up 
Tibet became independent, but then when the communists took over China, they uh, said, nope, that's coming back. And so they took over China, or Tibet, and have been ruling it um, ever since. And certainly a, a source of contention. But as you can see, it's right there in the middle of the 1040 window. And the story takes, takes place there and over in Kashmir, which is about here, uh, north part of India and Pakistan. And that's, if you've been seeing that in the news uh, lately as well, the conflict continues in that area. Tibetan Buddhism is led by this fine gentleman right here, the Dalai Lama. He's the 14th Dalai Lama that has ever lived, a part of a chain that goes back over 500 years. He lives in northern India. He managed to escape from Tibet in 1959, and uh, he has... He's a very popular, respected man in the world, uh, spokesman for Tibet, advocate for peace, advocate for a peaceful resolution to this conflict between the people of Tibet who would li- want their independence and the Chinese government. And he's, I believe, 84 years old. And as he's looking uh, down the road, he's he's saying... I'm not sure there's going to be a 15th Dalai Lama. We're going to, when I get to be 90 years old, we're going to decide whether this Dalai Lama position should continue. Because he's going to say, I'm going to choose whether I reincarnate as number 15. Because that's the way they do it with the Dalai Lama. They, when one dies, they go looking for the next one. And the monks have certain criteria that they use to identify the next Dalai Lama. And so this, with the Tibet being controlled by China, there's obviously a political um, aspect to this. The Chinese say, yes, there will be a 15th Dalai Lama, and he's going to be chosen in Tibet. And so um, obviously a point of conflict. This man, he is a deeply spiritual man. He spends three to four hours a day. This is a picture. Both these pictures were taken from a, uh, last month's National Geographic uh, which had an article on him and the refugees that uh, from Tibet. He spends three to four hours a day meditating in the very early morning. He describes this as mainly analytical meditation, focusing the mind away from far- harmful emotions such as fear, anger, and jealousy to increase loving kindness. Our world might be a better way, place if we all spent three to four hours a day, focusing on those things, but also focusing on God's word. I don't have the expertise to uh, give you a dissertation on Tibetan Buddhism, but it is a very dominant religion in Tibet, uh, Mongolia, uh, other uh, northern India, over into Kashmir, uh, Nepal, Bhutan, Sikkim, the countries in that area. And it's one of the things that we know about it is that prayer wheels are a big deal. And here you see, oh, shoot. 
You can spin them as you walk by. You can have one in your hand that you swirl around. There's big ones. You can say some big prayers. You have one on your, around your neck. And you can even get a solar-powered one now from Amazon. That, and these, the prayer wheels have prayers written on them. And as they're spinning, the prayers are being lifted to their gods. And this is the, the primary mantra that we know in the West as, as being associated with Tibetan Buddhism, Buddhism is Om Mani Padmi Hum. And they just say that over and over and over again. So something to do with the, the jewel is in the lotus. And there's some controversy about what exactly, whether that's exactly what it means or if it means something else. But it's, it's a very repetitive, uh, lifting of prayers. Another way to do it is with prayer flags. And this is, uh, in the vicinity of Mount Everest. And just as the wind blows, it keeps those prayers going up. And the point of the prayers and everything else that, as I understand it, is done is that it earns merit with God. And if you, the hope is to be able to escape the cycle of reincarnation. And it's a form of salvation by works. And it doesn't, not necessarily something that gives a lot of hope because you're kind of feeling like this is my fate. Well, our story involves the 14th, uh, no, not the 14th. 14th is who we have now. The 11th Dalai Lama. And he was, let's talk about this slide first. Um, here's a text that many people find interesting. Isaiah 49, 12 says, Surely these shall come from afar. Look, those from the north and the west, and these from the land of Sinem. Well, where is Sinem? We know where north is. We know where west is. And if you're in the land of Palestine, that suggests, you know, up into Asia Minor, over into Europe, North Africa. But where's Sinem? That's some other direction. Many people, interpreters, believe that this refers to China. And Tibet is a part of China. And so God, I believe, has had the desire that people from all parts of the world, including China, will come to know him. I have another book I got off the free table that talks about that, but that's beyond our scope this morning. So as we go through this story that begins with the 11th Dalai Lama, I want you to watch for those points that we learned in Vacation Bible School. Look for God's calling, God's leading, His providing, His saving, and keeping His promises in the lives of the people who are involved in this story. This giant building is the Patola Palace. This is the headquarters of the Dalai Lama in the city of Lhasa, L-H-A-S-A, in just the capital of Tibet. This has a thousand rooms. And I'm not sure when it was built, but it's very old, and uh, 
an amazing place. I would, I would love to see that someday. It was here in 1856, a time when there was no Christianity in Tibet. They didn't allow missionaries in. It was a closed country ruled by Buddhist monks and living Buddhas. A very ancient culture. This Buddhism that they were practicing went back over a thousand years. At that same time, life was good for a man named Tempu Gurgen. He was a wealthy, powerful man who was part of the ruling council of Tibet. One of three who was on that council, plus uh, a monk. The 11th Dalai Lama was 18 years old, and it was just starting to take over power from the regent. The Dalai Lama is usually identified when he's two, three, four years old, and then taken to the palace, and there's a, um, and educated in the ways of Tibetan Buddhism, and then he is, um, when he gets to be 18 or so, then he is allowed to take over the leadership. But in the meantime, they have a regent uh, taking care of him uh, and making the decisions for the country. Well, he was about the point he was going to take over power, and he was happy and healthy one night, was found dead in the morning. And they was suspected that he had been poisoned by a hermit who was the last one to visit him. Interestingly, the ninth, the tenth, and the twelfth Dalai Lama also died under suspicious circumstances at a young age before they really took over power. But at this time, the question was, who was behind the murder? They said, this hermit couldn't have done this all on his own. Somebody put him up to this. And he disappeared. So they made the decision to ask the oracle to reveal it. And Tempu Gurgen had a bad feeling about this because he'd gotten a little crossways with the oracle recently because he'd accused him of being a fraud. So he made preparations to flee. I believe God put it on his heart that you need to get out of town. He sent his wife and trusted servants that very day with ten mule loads of gold and three mule loads of silver out of town. God provided some resources for his for his journey. After a long meeting of the ruling council late that night, the oracle worked himself up into a trance and appeared to be possessed by Pehar, um, the three-headed, six-armed principal deity of their religion. He developed superhuman strength, insensitivity to pain, and the a living Buddha who was there started to question him and said, who did this? Who killed the Dalai Lama? And he named Tempu Gurgen as the man behind the murder. And so immediately, Tempu slipped out of the room and ditched his rich clothes, walked out as a peasant. And out of the palace, over the wall, got on a horse with his servant who had been holding, had two horses there, and they rode like crazy and uh, uh, all night, and they just barely managed to escape with their lives. 
This is the uh, map from the front of the book. And always interesting to see the things you can learn uh, from the front of the book. I don't know who Mrs. Everett Kirk was from Paradise, California, but she gifted this church with her with the book. And it was part of our church library, and now we clearly can see that I didn't steal it because it was surplus. <laughs> but anyway, by the time we're done here, you'll probably see that I love maps. And I love a map, a book with maps in it. And I because I like to keep referring to the map. Well, over here on the right is Lhasa, the capital. Well, he headed out of town over the mountains and over this Changtang Plateau. We don't know exactly where he went, but we do know that he went by the city of Shigatse. He caught up with his caravan and his wife and his uh, uh, all his possessions, and they realized they were still being pursued. He'd hoped to settle down there, but they went up this mountain valley over its... I'll show you what... It's really rough terrain there. Um, this whole way is past Mount Everest. That's down here. India's down here in Nepal. Kept going and going and going. Finally, all the way out of Tibet. Finally, he felt safe to stop. And he uh, settled. He had been heading for this town, Lay, here, but he actually found a place he wanted to live uh, and bought the valley somewhere in this area. This gives you a little bigger picture. I have China on the right. Tibet is in the middle. He didn't have Google Maps to help him make his journey. But now you can make that trip in about 23 hours by car. Well, most of it. The, the part that's within Tibet. The roads don't go over the mountain into Kashmir. But 1,500 kilometers, 23 hours by car. But he might have taken more like the 30-hour the version, which goes up over the Changtang Plateau. But in any case, a long trip. It took six months. Was when you're carrying your, a lot of your possessions on a yak and you're riding on a mule or a horse and you've got a, a large uh, group of people with you. It takes a long time dealing with winter, well, he settled down. So this is a closer look up, and you can see there's just these high mountain lakes and crazy mountains, these white lines. If only I could hit the right button. Um, these are the, the Himalaya mountains here, all along to the south of him. But these aren't exactly, this is no picnic up here. The fact that this is, you know, down here in India, it's green because it rains and things grow nicely. Up here, it's mostly rock and high mountain plateaus and so very rugged. And so then, because I couldn't make a, a Google map that went all the way, the other map ended about here. And his goal was over here. So over more mountains and crazy stuff, and somewhere ended up in, in this area. One of the most interesting things that he saw along the way, and the place he really wanted to visit, was this mountain called uh, Kailas, 
K-A-I-L-A-S. It's the ice jewel of the gods. Just pops right up there, and there's a 29-mile road that goes all the way around it. And the pilgrims come, and they, they walk, they crawl, they inchworm themselves, they say prayers, they earn a lot of merit by coming to visit and traveling around this mountain. Where he settled may have looked something like this. Um, Bought a valley, he built a house, he built a temple. And that was the way it looked like life was going to be. He started to use his, his resources to do some trading. But a couple years later, something changed history. In 1858, two Moravian missionaries, followers, the Moravians are followers of John Huss, who was one of the early reformers in Bohemia. Remember, he was burned at the stake because he wouldn't recant. Well, these Moravian missionaries had been trying multiple routes to try to get into Tibet. They had tried from the east. They had tried from the south. They tried. Now they'd come around to try from the west. That somehow we are called. God is leading us to Tibet. We've got to get there. Well, they stopped at his house and they said, you know, this is our plan. Is there any way we can do this? And he said, you know, there's not. You're just going to, even if you get in, they're going to kick you right out. They might kill you. And he said that the sad truth is they would never make it. And he invited them to stay. He said, why don't you stay with me? Let's, you know, rest up. Tell me what you're all about. And so they said, you know, this guy's a really nice guy. Maybe he can help us in another way. They said, can you help us to translate the Bible into Tibetan? Because we don't, and help us learn Tibetan. We don't understand Tibetan very well, but we want to reach the Tibetan people. And it'd really help if we had the Bible in Tibetan. So he agreed, they, they agreed, and they settled down for what turned out to be a very long time. He was a very generous host. They, they ended up living there for decades. Well, as they were working on this translation problem, they realized that there was there's some real issues with translating the Bible into Tibetan because there's different levels of language in Tibet. Not only is it lots of isolated people groups that are spread here, there, and everywhere, and they don't interact with each other that much, but there's also uh, the language of the Tibetan Buddhists, the culture, uh, the priests, and they speak what's called the high literary register. And that's their scriptures are in that. And most people don't understand it because they are not that educated. But the advantage is if you use that, then people all over Tibet who are educated could understand the Bible. If you go down a notch to the mid literary register, you mix in some more common words, um, gives a wider reach but it's more difficult to understand than the spoken language. And then the low literary register is the spoken language or vernacular, which is specific to particular regions, but less prestigious. And so that wasn't really that useful either. So they struggled a lot trying to make sense of the Bible 
in Tibetan. Try to translate these concepts. Translate the concept of one true God into a culture where there's, they'll say, sure, another God? Great, we'll take that. Because they have lots of gods. How do you translate the one true God? Well, 30 years went by, and he finally had a son. His name was Sonam. He grew up listening to the Bible stories the missionaries told as they spent day after day with his father trying to make the Bible comprehensible in Tibetan. At times it seemed as if the father, Tempu Gurgen, was wishing for a way to escape the cycle of karma, but he clung to the old ways. Finally, they got the Gospel of John translated and printed and sent into Tibet. Not long after that, Tempu died of tuberculosis in 1897 when his son was 12 years old. This verse is printed in, in your bulletin and I think is really a key one for my what we're talking about today. Jeremiah 31.3 says, The Lord says, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn you. God was drawing this young man, Sonam, with the stories that he heard from these missionaries. He'd been drawing his father, and we don't know, you know what his father's final conclusion was, but we do know that Sonam responded to this drawing that God is putting on every person. And it reminds me of what we had heard a few weeks ago. Malin talked about the importance of Christian education. This was a Christian education that this young man had received from these missionaries. Deuteronomy 11.19 says, You shall teach them these words of, of mine, of God, to your children, speaking of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. This was nothing formal, but this was just, these missionaries didn't say, can we just get the kid out of here so we can get some work done? They said, no. Listen to to this story, son, Sonam. Isn't it amazing what God did in this way? And so they just, as part of their being there, they shared these stories over and over again with him. And it, it converted him. This is his picture much later in life. Well, Sonam, after he, mourning for his father, openly declared that he wanted to be a Christian, and he was baptized, and he took a new name, Yoseb, or Joseph. He felt called to give legs to the Bible so that it could run into Tibet and tell his people about Jesus. He asked to be sent to school, so they sent him to the Christian missionary school over in the capital of, of Kashmir, in Srinagar. He was a very good student. He learned English and Urdu. He was offered a job with the British government of India at age 23. Very prestigious and you know, would have been a, a great job for him. But he refused. He says, I need to go back to my valley. I need to go home and work with my people. He returned and was tempted to settle down. His father had been a wealthy man, had a very prosperous estate there. 
And he said, maybe I should, you know, make sure this is all run, running well, and um, then I'll get back to translating the Bible in a few years. His missionary friends had moved since he had gone to school to Lay, the, the, which had been his father's original destination. And they urged him to come there to pastor the small Tibetan church and to help with the Bible translation. And he struggled with that decision until he had two dreams in one night which made it clear to him that the choice, what the choice was before him. Was it to choose wealth in his valley or eternal life in heaven? So without looking back, he divided his estate among the servants and said, you take this. I've, I've got a different work to do. And he left, feeling clearly led by God. And that occurred, that was about 1908 that he had finished school and went to be a pastor. There he found that the translation work was still going very slowly. The Gospel of John that had been created had never been a success. It was hard to understand and apparently didn't give the true meaning. Just didn't have the right words and concepts. He can, the, they'd gotten a new translator. Um, the old, other ones were getting old and, um, but had the, you know, they were still at it as well. They just weren't making a breakthrough. And he prayed a lot about it. One day he set out to visit, uh, one of his parishioners. And he was hiking up the trail, stopped to rest by a um, little Tibetan temple. And he heard the monk chanting, maybe spinning his prayer wheel and chanting. And he suddenly realized that the Lama was reciting from an ancient book that seemed to contain the very phrases the translators were searching for, concepts of God that, that they needed. He said, can I take a look at that? And the guy said, you know, I've never let anybody else touch this book. You know, my father, my grandfather, it's been passed down to me. And he said, well, I'll, I'll be very careful with it. So he let him look at it, and he said, this is amazing. Can I borrow it? And the guy goes, whoa. Uh, okay, you can borrow it. And he said, I'll, I'll bring it back. He said, no, you keep it. I'm getting old. I don't have anybody to give it to. I want you to have it. And so... He took the book and he took it back. The visit didn't happen. He had to get back to show his friends, the translators. And it was just the breakthrough that they needed to be able to express these concepts simply. But it still took years to get the Bible translated. They finally finished in 1935 when he was 50 years old. Well, great, we got the Bible translated, let's print it. Well, not that easy. There was no place in India to print that Bible. They had to send it to England. Can you imagine putting your life's work in the mail and sending it by boat to England? Great faith. Well, they sent it there, they copied it, and they sent it out for field testing in Tibetan-speaking areas bordering Tibet. They found that the common people could understand it. 
Even the lamas also seemed ready to adopt it as a holy book. They said, this is an inspired book. But about that time, what happened? World War II. And the original manuscript was sent to the basement of a cathedral 200 miles north of London. A bomb landed outside the wall of that cathedral, four feet from the manuscript. The bomb didn't explode. When the ordnance disposal team came, they said, we don't understand why this bomb didn't blow up. It was perfect. There was no reason it shouldn't have exploded. By the time the war was over, Yosef was 60, and he was eager to see the Bible printed before he died. They sent it back to India since they had some new equipment and they thought they could do it. But unfortunately, they'd been hoping to photograph the manuscript and print from that since they didn't have any Tibetan type. And we'll see a little bit of Tibetan type in a little bit. That We'll see why that might be a problem. It's not like anything else you've ever seen. But the, the copy that they had had, that he had made early on and had been sent back and forth, was unsuitable for this process and it needed to be recopied. And they even had to make special paper so that they could do it. So they sent it back to, to, to Lay, his hometown, and said, can you, can you fix this? Well, he worked on it for over two years, finally had a heart attack and fell unconscious to the floor. The doctor came and said, there's no hope, he's dying. But his church gathered around him and prayed earnestly for his recovery, and it slowly happened. They got in four other scribes to help him, and they finally finished it in 1946. Five days later, after the manuscript was finished, he died. But God's word didn't die. It still had work to do. And the manuscript went back to Lahore, which is uh, in Pakistan now. Still had some problems. It needed corrections by one of the, the scribes. Well, at this point, there was a war going on between India and Pakistan. How do you get something into the middle of a war zone that needs to be fixed? They couldn't, didn't, this time they decided not to send it by mail. And so they sent it by a courier. The first one disappeared. They later found him at the bottom of a, of a valley that figured an avalanche had gotten him. So they sent us another set of proofs with an old Christian mountain man who got caught in a horrible storm on the last pass. He got hit by lightning, deafened him, but he was happy he made it through. But then when they opened the saddlebags, the pages had been ruined by water in that last storm. It's about this time that another man of great faith comes into the picture. His name is Chandu Ray. He's the leader of the Bible Society in India and Pakistan. And he called for intense prayer throughout India to be able to finish the Tibetan Bible. Things settled down enough to send a third set by mail to Lay. And Gapal, one of the scribes who had been involved in finishing the process, Um, 
realized that the originals needed corrections, and they decided that the only solution was for him to go across the mountains to Lahore and get the job finished. He recalled how he had been converted by Yosef. He had been a Tibetan monk, and Yosef had come and visited him at the at the monastery, visited all the monks, and you know, made friends with them, talked with them, interacted with them, and finally had converted him and asked him to join in the work of translation. He had been working on training as being able to copy the, the Buddhist scriptures, but now he was working on Christian scriptures. Well, Gapel set out over the mountains. There's our map again. Here's where the, the translation work had been going on. This is where it needed to be to be printed. So he sets out and heads this way, because apparently that's kind of the way out of the mountains. But he got stuck. And they didn't hear from him. They thought, oh no, we lost another one. Finally, uh, a message gets through to Chandu Ray, the leader of the Bible Society. Very cryptic note saying where Gapel was. I'm okay, the manuscript's okay, but I'm stuck. So Chandu Ray says, I've got to go. I've got to go to Kashmir and get him out of there. And he was really taking his life in his hands because India controlled this part of Kashmir. He was a Pakistani, and there was a war going on between India and Pakistan. Well, he managed to get the last commercial flight to Kashmir. He got close to the front lines and started witnessing to the Indian soldiers and told his story. Their officer took him across the only bridge for miles and they found Gapple just as described, which was a good thing because if he had been if the soldiers had thought he'd been lying, they wouldn't wouldn't have tolerated that very well. They would have killed him. The officer was impressed to help him and not kill him as they usually would have done to a Pakistani in that area. So they got back to the airport only to find that all civilian flights had been canceled. So they went to see the inspector general to try to get a pass on a military flight. They said, well, that's the only way that you can get out of here, but there's no way you're going to get that. They don't give that to civilians. When they got there, Sandy Ray says, we got to try. They get there, and they find out that the inspector general is a Sikh. You know, the ones who have the, the big turban on their head. And they hate Pakistanis. And so he said, I'm going to have to leave this in God's hands. He told him the whole truth. He said, uh, left the result with God. They gave him, the man said, okay, I believe you. You have nothing to do with this conflict. You're on, you're on a mission for God. And they gave him two priority one passes, and they were allowed to leave for Delhi. Of course, at the airport, they said, no way, these are fake. They, he, they wouldn't have given them to you. They said, well, call him. They called the, called the inspector and said, yes, it's, re- it's real. Let him through. So they made it out. Well, great. He gets down to Delhi from up here. What problem might there have been next? Climate's a little different down here 
than it is up here. And Mr. Gapple, the scribe, had never been down here before, and it was like over 100 degrees and 100% humidity. Felt like he was going to die. He, and he was just literally going into heat exhaustion. And so, and they didn't have air conditioning. And so they prayed and they said, Lord, we know it's two weeks until the monsoons are supposed to come, but can you send them early? And the monsoon rains came two weeks early. So he was able to get through that. And then they were, he barely survived the train trip to Lahore. That was just, you know, Man is used to not that many people and the mountains get crowded into this train. They couldn't get any first class or second class tickets. They had to just go with the masses. So they made it to Lahore over here. Still pretty hot there. And Gapple was still having trouble with the heat. He said, if only I could breathe the wind off the snow, I could work. So they went and bought 50 blocks of ice and set them around Gapple with a couple of fans. And he said, "Ah, that's better. And he got back to work. And he worked up to 20 hours a day, like a madman, to finish the job once and for all. Finally, the Bible was printed in August of 1948. Well, Gapple said, I'm done with trains. I'm done with planes. I am going home. Give me a horse. So they bought him a horse. And it took him 40 days to get back through the mountains. Because he couldn't take the roads because there was a war going on. So he he says, I know the back roads. I'll, I'll make it. So he took a copy of the Bible, probably more than one. And he read it every day along the way. And finally he got back to, to lay and said, and they thought he was dead. They thought, you know, we'd never see this guy again. And, but he made it through. So the, what happened to the Bible? It made it into, the Bibles were brought into Tibet and they started to have an influence, even on the guerrilla bands which were fighting against the Chinese communists and resisting the, the overtaking of their country. Finally, in 1959, the Dalai Lama had to flee to India, miraculously escaping much as Tempu Gurgen did. He was presented a copy of the Tibetan Bible by Christian missionaries, and it was given to many of the refugees, and it was sent into Tibet as well. Here's one of my favorite parts of this story. A communist general in Lhasa decided that the best way to control these Tibetans was to learn Tibetan. And he ordered his officers to say, to learn Tibetan. The only problem was they didn't have any Tibetan Chinese textbooks. And so he said, well, we took a bunch of Bibles from those Christians in China. Bring those over here and give us some of those Tibetan Bibles and you guys figure it out. (laughs) That way you can learn to translate between the two languages. Who knows? what the result of of that has been. But he told his men to study the Bible. Praise God. Matthew 24, 35 says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So one last look at the map. 
Here's where our story started. Here's Leigh. Here's Delhi. And Lahore is over here somewhere. So a lot of mountains, a lot of traveling. God provided for his word and brought it to reality. Isaiah 51.11 says, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the things for which I sent it. So God is sending his word all over the world, and he's got plans for it, what it's going to accomplish. Here we have an example of Tibetan script. And here, the bottom part, it says, this page is a page from the Tibetan Bible. John 3.16, which we studied in our Sabbath school lesson this morning, is underscored. I'm glad they can read it, because I sure can't. But what an amazing thing for people to be able to read in their own language. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God wants everyone, whoever, whosoever believes, to have everlasting life to the whole world, not just to people who look like us, not just to people who live in the West or in Christian countries, but every country. Because here's the best part. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world, the whole world, through him might be saved. The only way to know, really understand that story is to be able to read it for yourself, to hear it in your language. Isaiah 65.1 says, I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. There's a number of people in this story who didn't go seeking for God, but I believe God found them. Tempu Gurgen certainly had a chance to be exposed to God, and we don't know what the end result of his, his life was, but he certainly was instrumental in presenting the gospel to his people. His son was found by God and used greatly. Gapel the scribe, called from being a a Tibetan monk and scribe to being a mighty worker for God, doing the, carrying out this amazing mission. God's timing is perfect. Some asked why it took so long to get the Bible translated into Tibetan. But if it had been available earlier, it would have been very difficult to get it into the country. But now that a great tragedy had come on Tibet and hope was gone, God's word was just coming in at just the right time, speaking of peace and life and hope. God had given legs to the Bible to let it run into into Tibet, just as Yosef Gergen dreamed of. Makes me think of 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For it is God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus has light to shine into our lives, and I think he intends us to shine out of our lights, our lives as well, into the lives of others. This brings us back 
to our VBS themes. I truly was blessed by seeing how God called, he led, he saved, he provided, he kept his promises through this story. And I know that we each have a different story, but that God is doing that in our lives as well. And he'll do even more if we will let him. What other messages or ideas did I get from this? That God is working to save people all over the world. He has a message of love and not condemnation. His love is everlasting. He is drawing all men to him. Another lesson is sometimes it takes a long time to see God's efforts play out. We don't know why that is or what makes the, that the best outcome. But we can be, have faith that God is making the best of a difficult situation as we are, we know that we're involved in a great controversy between God and Satan. Like another important point here is that children are important. Blessings come from consistently teaching them from Scripture. They need to be encouraged to blossom into who God wants them to be. And the best way, we, as we as parents, grandparents can do is to Keep providing God's Word, the Bible stories, to our children day by day. Morning, evening, any opportunity you get. Uh, listening to uh, stories in the car. Listening to, um, and as well as bringing kids to Sabbath school. Sending them to church school or making sure that they have a Christian influence in their life. Because it's really when kids are, are young that they are the most impressionable to receiving the gospel. And I think another point is that God uses Christians of many faiths to advance the gospel. This isn't a, this story involved a Seventh-day Adventist medical missionary who brought this story to our attention, but he didn't do the translation work. He didn't convert Yosef Gergen. He didn't print the Bible. Christians have a work to do together to help spread the gospel to the whole world. I just pray that we can all uh, find a place as part of that. Let's bow our heads. Dear Father in Heaven, we thank you for the way you worked to bring the Bible to the Tibetan people. And I can just, I can't wait to see in Heaven what the effect, what the, what the final result of this story is of all the places that the Bible ran to on the legs that, that Yosef Gergen gave it. Please continue to work in the lives of the people of Tibet and help them to come to understand your love and care for them. And Lord, please help us to live out your love in our lives and to be lights in our community and to find ways to express your love to those around us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.